Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 118, Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, The Spacewalks. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. Coming up very soon, this November 2019, astronauts aboard the International Space Station are set to kick off a unique and difficult set of spacewalks to repair an experiment called the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. Sounds like something straight out of sci-fi, right? But it's very real and a very complicated piece of equipment. The Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, or AMS, is collecting data from high-energy particles and looking for evidence of antimatter and dark matter in the cosmos, which may reveal more about the formation of the universe. Now, with such a complicated particle physics experiment comes some complicated spacewalks, where astronauts get in their spacesuits and go outside of a spacecraft, and in this case, for the International Space Station, to go through a well-thought-out and planned procedures with special tools to fix things. So, to help bring to light the significance of this experiment and these spacewalks, we're going to dive deep into the story of the AMS and this repair, and break this into three parts, the science, the spacewalks, and the tools all with fascinating discussions with the experts that are working on repairing the AMS. So last episode, we sat down with Brandon Riddell, and he walked us through the astrophysics and cosmology of it all, and what this alpha magnetic spectrometer is all about. So today, in part two of this three-part series, we're going to focus on this complicated series of spacewalks with the very people who are leading the effort, Terry Yoakum and Brian Mader. Tara is the project manager, and Brian is the task lead for this repair mission, and they walk us through all of the work that's been done so far to prepare for these spacewalks, and what the teams will be doing to execute these complicated maneuvers. So here we go. The history and details behind the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer Spacewalks with Tara Yoakum and Brian Mader. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Tara and Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. All right. Tara, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I think it was episode 83. We talked about planning for, I'll say with quotes, a regular EVA, um, but now you've been actually even at the time i believe when we were talking about planning for a normal eva in episode 83 you were working on these spacewalks that's right it's it's been a long haul here four years we've been working to uh develop and design and really train for these evas it's been a, it's been a great road that's right now your role specifically is what for these particular spacewalks i'm the space station program project manager for the ams eva repair activities so okay it's a mouthful i heard a lot of cats and get everybody where they need to be hopefully <laughs> you know we we set up the requirements way back in the beginning almost four years ago on how we were going to go about doing this. Um, I helped the team then figure out how we're going to get there, get them the funding to do it, and make sure in the end we've met all the requirements and everyone's going to be safe to go off and do their activity. So. Okay, so it's defining those requirements and then making sure, herding, herding the sheep and mm -hmm. making sure everyone's following along right on time, keeping that keeping that timeline going. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Your role is task lead? Yes. So what do you do as task lead? So my job title, I'm the EVA task lead. Mm -hmm. EVA is extravehicular operations, spacewalks. Um, so in general, what I'm responsible for is training astronauts to do their spacewalks and then developing the procedures for the spacewalks. 
and uh, when we're actually doing them in space, I'll be in the Mission Control Center in one of the backroom support rooms. So the MIPSers are multi, what is it? Uh. Multi-purpose support room. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you can pull out the actual long form of an, of a, of a, of an acronym, it's pretty impressive because there's so many. You learn stuff every single time we do this podcast. But your job, I guess, in the back room would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, to know those procedures backwards and forwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So for, for normal EVAs, uh, we don't have as long of a lead time. Um, we'll probably talk about that later. But uh, for these, like Tara said, four years in the making, uh, we've gone through all the, all the hardware development, just from the phases of what tools do we even need? <laughs> and then, okay, we figured out what tools we need. How do we make those usable? for somebody in a spacesuit, so. Okay, that's kind of where I wanted to start with this one because uh, Tara, like like I mentioned, we, we talked about generally planning for a spacewalk and how I wanted to start was comparing that, comparing what we would say as just a normal spacewalk. Let's take, for example, the battery spacewalks that we have going on right now, which we've done in the past, we have the tools, uh, and then the differences with, with what it takes to plan for these AMS EVAs. Well, I think one of the big things is what we consider these different types of EVAs. You know, a normal EVA, I think, is what we've been calling it, is, is more of a um, skills-based training event that the crews go through. They're given a series of different training activities, and they learn kind of generically how to do EVA. They're able to go on orbit and perform more of these more generic skill sets. Um, for the AMS EVAs, Things are rather different than that. We have a lot of specialized tools that were built specifically for AMS. We incorporate our more generic EVA tools as well, but these specific tools they had to receive a lot of training on and be able to understand the specific tasks that they have to do, which again are very unique to AMS. So I think those are the big differences. And Brian, if you have any other thoughts on that one. So what if you, um, if, if you're going through your normal training what does that look like what does normal eva training look like so as tara said we do a skills-based training so for um, an astronaut that is assigned to fly to space station they have about a year and a half of a training plan and we have uh, it's about eight neutral buoyancy lab runs where they get in the suit get in the pool and uh, they go through generic tasks so those are focused largely on what we call the critical contingency evas or cces um, so critical station systems that if one breaks, we have to get outside and fix it pretty quickly. Um, but again, skills-based, so they, they focus on generic tools and things like um, how to get around station, um, not necessarily how do you put certain tasks together in a spacewalk. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to practice a run of any kind of task, it's going to be your emergency tasks because you want to know if something goes wrong, you at least know the basis of how to work with that issue. Sure, and we, we do reserve the last, it's usually about the last two runs of their training flow, where if we have an idea that maybe this particular crew is going to do a spacewalk, we would put that content in there. So for AMS, we've known for a long time, um, you know, these are much different than that skills-based, so we wanted to get a lot of um, specific training for the crew. Mm, okay, so we'll get into that. We'll get into that in a second. But I did want to go through. So we talked about training tools. What are the what are the normal tools that they would be using? For the AMS EVAs, we've got a 
I wouldn't call them normal. I, I would <laughs> call them unique, right? <laughs> I, we we went through and had to figure out what these specific tasks were going to be for EVA. So a lot of the unique tools are involved with cutting some stainless steel tubes, really thin tubing that um, is located on the AMS itself. We have to be able to go in and bypass a system that's there and install a new system in place of it. So you have to be able to hook up this stainless steel tubing. Um, we don't like to cut things in orbit in, in a spacesuit. You know, you're going to generate a sharp edge or maybe some debris. So those are considerations we had to take as we went off and designed these different tools. The engineers, you know, the smart EVA engineers that have designed tools for a long time had to say, well, this, this is going to be a unique place that we're going to be at, this work site, a unique skill that's going to need to be done, and how can we make it safe for the EVA crew member throughout the process. Mm. So some new cutting tools, um, some new swaging tools, and uh, just some uni unique EVA handrails and things that uh, we didn't have in the past have to be installed in this location. Okay, so like, I, I guess you would say tools for, for example, the battery spacewalks, they're they're not as you know you don't have to deal with those sharp edges you, it's it's uh it's they and and like you said Brian they're learning kind of the basic skills with these tools when they at least first start training to learn how to do an EVA in the first place sure so for example when a when a new astronaut comes in and they're first starting their training in the in the pool you know it's learning how to maneuver in the suit so it's not easy just being in the suit. Um, but then talking about generic tools, one of the most basic tools that we use is a, is a tether. So everything in space has to be tethered at all times, otherwise it floats away, and mm -hmm. that's not fun, um, especially if it's you. So the, the crew members <laughs> have tethers, right? And they've got a safety tether, they've got other tethers that they use to hold themselves at a work site, and then every piece of equipment is tethered. So you know, imagine drinking your coffee in the morning and having a, a rope going to it and then you have to move it to another one. It, it's very time consuming. And uh, it, it can also be, um, you know, they, they take tennis balls to do hand exercises, right? Because oh, it's wow. very forearm intensive. The suit is pressurized at 4.3 PSI. So anytime you clench your hands, make a fist, you're fighting against that pressure. So just being outside is physically draining in that regard too. Very true. Yeah, spacewalking 101, attach yourself to all things and attach exactly. all things to yourself. Exactly. So that, you, yeah, you don't want any kind of free floating things. So that's spacewalking 101. And then spacewalking skills 101, get that grip strength going. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good one. Yeah. And some of the other stuff, you know, you, you talk about these battery EVAs that we're going in right now. Mm -hmm. um, they are a little bit more skills-based, right? They have these huh. generic EVA work sites that were designed for the EVA crew member to be there. They are protected from a safety perspective of being able to withstand a crew kicking or bumping that location. In theory, they're not sharp. You know, they've been protected from that on the ground. Um, and they have handrails in those locations to allow the crew member to stabilize themselves in that work site. We don't have any of that for AMS. <laughs> so going in and looking at these, what we determined to be work sites, we had to go make them so that they were EVAable. We installed handrails in locations where there are none. Certainly no brackets or they weren't locations that were built for an EVA handrail to be installed on. So the engineers here had to go off and design new handrails for an EVA crew member to be able to go and install them. So simple things like that, you have to set up the work site. If you're at home working on your car, you have to have a workspace for yourself to work in. Well, we had to go off and design that on a piece of hardware that's in space. 
So you only have the drawings that you have on the ground, the recollections from the engineers that were the ones that built it and designed it in the first place many years ago. And then you go off and do your best effort to figure out how is this new piece of hardware that we're going to design fit with the item that's in space. So naturally, this is where those four years of planning come in because you're working with something that, A, wasn't really meant to be worked on, so you have to design a way to work with it. Um, and then not only that, but you don't really get to play with it a little bit. You have to, you have to, it's a lot of guesswork, but I guess educated guesswork, because you said you're looking at drawings, you're talking to experts. Um, it's just not the real thing. Right, very educated guesswork, <laughs> I would call it. Yeah, for sure. This is, a, this is a sensitive piece of equipment, which I think is part of the reason why you're developing the techniques and tools the way you're, that you're doing is because like you said, um, you mentioned the, the part of uh, the battery spacewalks that they're doing. If, you know, if crew members can bump up against something, this is not a piece of equipment you really want to bump up against. So I'm sure you're designing not only tools, and, but also techniques to really help you deal with that. Sure. So, you know, one of the things that we put into a lot of those runs in the pool, um, we also used Argos, which you guys are familiar with. Argos, oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, I was yeah. there. I got to I got to check it out. Yeah, so we've used Argos um, to train the crew a lot. Um, you know, the spacesuit takes up a lot of space just in and of itself, and we're trying to get into very small areas, as Tara said, that weren't designed for EVA. There's also things, I mean, this is a big particle physics experiment, so there's tons and tons of wires and cables, and um, some of them were used for ground testing, and they're not that important anymore. If we happen to cut or rip one of those, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> Uh, but there are other ones that are critical to the experiment where if we cut certain cables, there's one that we're going to be um, very close to for a lot of the work that we're doing. I've nicknamed the aorta of AMS because it's a main data channel for a lot of the experiment. Wow. So we've got to be really careful with that one. So I guess a lot of designing this spacewalk was trying to figure out how this thing works and knowing all the ins and outs of it so that you're cutting the, you're cutting the right wires. I'm no particle physicist, oh. I'll say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, somewhat, yes, we had to understand what those pieces and parts are that, you know, the crew member is going to be interfacing with. But that's where you also bring in the experts. We, we're fortunate that we have the AMS project office here in Houston that has mm -hmm. worked with the engineers and the physicists over in Europe for a number of years and helped design and build the AMS itself. Um, having that knowledge here at JSC has been just super, super helpful to us to be able to, be able to go off and design this. They helped, um, you know, build the mock-up for us to be able to go off and use in these training events and really our tool design events, I would call them in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And their innate knowledge from that is what helped us be able to go figure out the exact worksite that they wanted to be in. When we first, Brian, I'm sure you remember, when we first started this many years ago, we were actually in a different location on AMS itself. And once the, you know, the the smart EVA folks got together with the smart engineers that knew about AMS itself, we determined that was not going to be the best location for an EVA crew member to access what we needed to get to. So they went back with the folks at CERN and really f determined another location. Okay, this new location will also give us this access. Would this work from an EVA pers perspective? So Brian's team went off and they figured out what was going to be the best way to access that. and. We went running from there. Here we go. Here we are. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Um, I know you said you said the you're working with teams that are sort of local. You also, you also have to work with teams kind of all over. Mm -hmm. um, did you pull some? I'm trying to think of like another like a, another scenario. The one that comes to mind naturally is Hubble. Was there knowledge pulled from from those servicing missions? 
absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of the fasteners, so we've got to remove a lot of um, fasteners that are just normal fasteners you'd have, maybe not at home, but on, on hardware on the ground that are not EVA compatible. So for bolts that we plan to remove during a spacewalk, it has to be captive, right? We don't want it floating away. So they're generally spring-loaded. They've got a clip or some other means to keep the bolt captive even when it's released from the hardware that you're using. So for this hardware, none of that was built in place because they didn't intend to do it, right? That was one of the things that was, uh, I think I can say, a large part of the work on Hubble where they removed a lot of fasteners and some of them even tiny, tiny fasteners. So we're able to leverage that and use, uh, we call them Hubble Heritage tools um, to capture these fasteners. So um, they've got basically a bit with a, a fork at the end that you're able to scoop under the head of the fastener and under the washer and actually capture that fastener as you're backing it out of the the hardware see it's details like that that i find absolutely fascinating because you just hear like oh it was meant to work it was you know you were meant to service this on a spacewalk like batteries right everything is is kind of designed so if human hands were meant to go service it but when you get into the details of why this was not designed to be serviceable, it gets really complicated because you're talking about these tiny little things that can float out. Not only are they tiny and hard to work with, but you got to do it in this bulky suit with these bulky gloves. Now that's where I guess the challenges come for you guys. For sure. <laughs> yeah, and you, you asked you know some of the other differences with Hubble. I what I would focus on from a program perspective is shuttle, or I should say Hubble had individual shuttle missions designated you know this is what we are going to do we are launching this sh shuttle mission so that we can go up and repair Hubble they had a whole army of folks behind them and a rather larger bucket of cash to, to pull from to be able to go off and design all these great new tools and events training all these things that they needed um, from a space station perspective we have a lot of other priorities going on right now you know space station we live and breathe and work in space every day of the year and um, so we had to balance those priorities with the priority of going off and being able to repair the AMS. So our group of folks was much smaller that we were able to leverage against this problem that we saw in front of us, and our bucket of money was smaller. So it was a real challenge from the team perspective of really looking at this differently and saying, how can we go about this safely with a high opportunity for mission success uh, to be able to repair this item and really you know, increase our knowledge of physics for years to come? Yeah, so it, it was. It's been a really unique challenge for the entire community. Resource-wise, staffing-wise, definitely those constraints. Also, like you mentioned, I mean, this is on the International Space Station. I guess the difference with sh with uh, shuttle going to Hubble is that that was it. It was shuttle going to Hubble. This thing. There's a lot of other things happening aboard the space station. The crew is busy. There's launches and landings happening all the time. So not only you know finding the your limited resources to work with this, but finding the opportunity, the time frame where you can actually do it. That's yep. got to be challenging. The planners as well. certainly have a big challenge ahead of them <laughs> with these next, you know, series of battery EVAs and, like you mentioned, all the comings and goings to station and all the other great science that station is doing as well. So it's a balance. Yeah, right? it's a balancing act to be able to fit all these things into the limited number of hours in the day. Besides the fact that the crew they live there, right? They have to eat, they have to exercise, they have to take care of business on station. So it's just like being at home here. We all have things we have to do at home. You have to balance that workload. That's so right. I, they're doing a great job so far. We're really looking forward to seeing <laughs> the schedule in the, in the coming weeks. 
Well, let's rewind the clocks a little bit. Let's go back to, you, you mentioned uh, four years. You mentioned four years that you've been working on it. Take me back to the beginning when this first became something that we started talking about. We're gonna look at repairing the alpha magnetic spectrometer. So you might remember, um, it was about four years ago, we did a spacewalk where part of that was we installed a big blanket on AMS. So they were having difficulty with um, thermal conditions at that time and uh, the blanket was kind of their first step in troubleshooting. They thought it was um, just something in how the system was designed, something they didn't anticipate. So we did that, we installed a blanket on the whole um, port facing side of AMS and we also installed a smaller, we called it a tent, but a little tent blanket over a very small radiator, probably about the size of a uh, like a lunch bag, I'd, I'd say. And uh, it was very soon after that where uh, the AMS folks were looking at their data still and quickly realizing that that wasn't accomplishing what they thought it was going to. And uh, they realized they had a bigger problem at that point. So um, they started looking into it and it was really on the heels of that spacewalk when we kicked off all these discussions to, to replace the whole cooling system. So that's what was wrong was the cooling system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a series of four pumps that are on uh, two different channels in the cooling system there, and the pumps were having issues. Uh, started failing pretty much one at a time, serially as they would start the new pump up. One pump runs at a time, and a pump would run for a while and it would see some issues. Um, eventually, three of the four pumps have failed, and really the fourth pump is on its last legs. They, they run it occasionally. They're able to get science when the pump is running. The system is being cooled. Uh, so we're hopeful to go and bypass that old system. We cut into the old system and install a new system on top of it, and then we'll provide them four new pumps to last them the life of Space Station. Okay. So we get a lot more science out there still. Yeah, that's uh, and that's a kind of a key driver of this, right? I think um, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, AMS was designed for a three-year lifespan. However it's getting some really valuable science and people recognize that and want to continue that. So this work is really to extend the life and keep that science going. Right. We want to keep collecting right. the data. Right. And it's your guys' job to do that. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, let's, get into, uh, let's get into the nitty gritty of the alpha magnetic spectrometer and why it's a bit more complicated. So, so you started kicking off. Um, you know, you realized there was this issue four years ago. The pumps aren't working. Okay, where do we start? What is wrong? How are we going to fix this thing? What were some of the first things you were doing? Yeah, first we gathered the team. You know, we got the EVA experts. Brian was a part of the blanket install, so he came on board. And of course, the AMS project office that built and designed. Uh, you know, was in support of that whole side of things to get it launched on the shuttle. We brought in safety and uh, tools engineers that have built tools in the past and are real familiar with EVA, and we just kind of started brainstorming with that team and really looking at the wooden mock-up, a very vague structure that we had of <laughs> AMS and a lot of PowerPoint presentations and things, and really just started brainstorming ideas on how we were going to go about what is it that we needed to do, and then how we would approach it from an EVA perspective. That's interesting. What is the EVA? The EVA perspective is, um, I guess I'm trying to think of the elements that, that would happen. Is What tools do you need? How much time do you need? What angles are going to be the best to not only, I guess, reach what you want to reach, but then not bump anything along the way? These are all things that you're considering. What can you hold on to? What can't you hold on to? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, 
you know, I think how we're going to get there. Are you approaching oh. the worksite robotically? Are they climbing on the hardware that's next to AMS? Can we install a foot restraint somewhere near it to get the crew member to where they need to be? So it was, you know, much broader than just the EVA operations community. They had to bring in robotics and other folks. Uh, so there was a lot of a lot of people to talk to, mm-hmm. and then just starting to identify our requirements and how we're what was the base tools that we needed to build. And some of the first ones were. Uh, we have to install handrails. We know we're going to remove all these non-captive fasteners that Brian was talking about, that we brought Goddard in to help. Um, And then where are these handrails gonna go? What would be the best location for that crew to approach this work site? Okay. Yeah, that's got to be one of the top seems, things is actually getting seems there. Seems simple, right? <laughs> yeah, well, of course, you just go to the worksite. Well, yeah. usually our EVA worksites are already designed for us and were tested on the ground and launched. This time around, we had to do all that work with the hardware on orbit and create it. Uh, okay. There. So I guess number one would be access. You want you want access to the AMS. You want ways that you can actually reach what you want to reach. So naturally, handrails would be one of those things. And a handrail, I guess, is just is just something you grab onto, and it doesn't pull anything or you know affect anything when you're grabbing onto That's it. That's right. That's number one. Yeah. Uh, it's got to meet all the loads underneath it. Right? You can't just oh. stick a handrail on any old piece of hardware. It has to be able to sustain the loads that a suited, very massive EVA crew member can impart into that structure below it. So you don't want them ripping the handrail off the side of AMS. That would be bad. So the AMS engineers had to help with that and identifying those locations of where we could put the handrail. And then Brian's team had to go off and say, you know what, that's great, but we actually need it over in this location because that's where the crew is going to be from a worksite perspective. So then the tools engineers would go off and figure out, well, we see the structure that's available to us. How can we create an interface that meets all the loading concerns and allows the crew member to be able to handle the item itself? See, right there, that's where <laughs> it gets super complicated, right? Because you have a need, right, Brian? You wanna, you wanna, your need is, I want this handrail to be where it is easiest to actually complete the task. But you have the scientists saying, no, that's gonna, you know, break the, this certain piece of equipment or it's gonna it's not gonna be able to handle the load of the person that's actually putting their whole body weight on that so where do you find those happy mediums how do you how do you work with those teams to make sure you're doing what you need to do lots and lots of discussions (laughs) so one of the stories I love to tell in this regard too is um, just what it takes to operate in the spacesuit you know we've talked about that a little bit in my job um, I've been working around astronauts in the suit for many years, and uh, I've been in the suit in the pool myself, which is invaluable to, to understand, oh, that's why they can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when we bring a team together like this on a piece of hardware that was never intended for spacewalks, um, the people that built AMS are brilliant. And the, I mean, the things that they put together on that are incredible. Um, but one of the most basic things, we're installing this new cooling system, the basic thing, you need power, and you need data. You need to be able to command the pumps and get telemetry. So early on, one of the, uh, actually the path to get data um, was a very, very small connector about the size of your pinky um, nail. Not your whole pinky, but just the top part of your, your pinky finger. Oh my God. <laughs> and, you know, for people that have put the hardware together on the ground, that it makes sense, right? That's where the data is. That's where you go get it. But then I look at that and go, you can't do that in a spacesuit. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, they had to go off and find an entire new path to get data. 
and it's that it's that understanding of you know what can the suit do what can't the suit do what kind of space can you get into you know when they built AMS there were literally people crawling inside of it well you can't do that in the spacesuit yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good example, too, of the integration that it took between our communities, right? So the idea of that connector didn't seem like much of a problem to the AMS side of the house until the EVA community, we had to go over to Europe and explain, you know what, we're not able to manipulate that size of a, of a connector in our big snowmobile gloves, is what I like to call, you know, the suit gloves. They're, they're very big and they're very awkward to handle small, detailed items. So they had to take that information back somewhat reluctantly in the beginning of, hey, this is our best, best method. Why can't we design some kind of tool? And the EVA community needed to help them understand that, you know, it's just not going to be safe for your product in the end, right? We have a high likelihood of destroying this connector with our gloved hands here. So they took that and they went back and they came up with another great concept that was much more EVAable. Now it's not perfect and it's not an EVA connector that we like to use on orbit, but it's something that we could make work. So again, it's that iterative process of going back and forth and figuring out what's going to be the best solution for the hardware that we have. I love that term, EVAable. But it sounds like it's definitely like, uh, is, is, it goes both ways, right? So uh, obviously the AMS folks are telling you, no, 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 don't put that there. And then you have to, you have to kind of work with that whenever you're designing your tools. But if you, if you say an astronaut is not going to be able to work with that, it's too fine, we've done a bunch of spacewalks before and it's it's just it's not going to work you need to design something new i mean they got they have to run with that they have to take it and design something new that's actually going to because ultimately the whole goal here is everybody's working together to save this piece of equipment absolutely right. same yeah. goal in mind yeah all right so we talked about um access access is one of the definitely main things for um for for the AMS, you were talking about requirements, Tara. What, you know, what, what are the requirements to actually do this? You need to access it. Here are the points that you can actually attach things to and get to it. Then come the tools. So how do you pick what tools, how many tools, how to work with tools? How does, how does that even begin? Because these are all brand no. new, right? That's right. I tell him no. <laughs> tell him no. <laughs> I say I want them all. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, it, it was some trial and error in the beginning. The engineers had some great concepts. The operations guys had some other concepts. Hmm. And it was kind of a meeting of the minds. How, how do we come together? Sometimes the engineers would 3D print some tools, and we would go over to the Argos mock-up, where we had this AMS standing mock-up. And they could physically get in there, and we would put on some EVA gloves and see if this tool could fit into the work site, if the crew member would be able to reach it with their typical arm length to get in there. Lots of factors that they had to look at. We'd go back and forth. If something worked, great. If something didn't, hey, back to the drawing board, and they would figure out how to modify maybe that current design, or they'd scrap it all together and come up with another one. And one thing that we do um, where we're kind of blurring the lines between AMS and, I'll use air quotes, normal spacewalks, um, so when we're developing new hardware, we like to get a good evaluation, right? So when, when we're designing hardware for station, we want to make sure that it's usable for all the crew members, different sizes, um, different abilities. So we do, uh, usually we'll do development runs in the neutral buoyancy lab where we'll get uh, at least three runs with different crew members and have them try the tasks. Um, so we did that early on with this project too and uh, quickly found out that because of the access issues that we've been talking about, a lot of what we're working on is recessed inside AMS. It actually kind of drives arm length requirements. So 
we don't explicitly have you know you have to have 47.8 inch arms or whatever um, but we did see in some of the early development where one person would get in and do a task no problem and the next person would get in and simply could not do it they couldn't reach so as Tara was talking about that did drive some of the lengths of some of our hardware as well it's something oh go ahead it, it, well, I was gonna say those kind of filled in the blanks for our assumptions to begin the project with you know we assumed we were going to have and I had this in every presentation I think I made was that we were going to have a highly trained highly skilled set of EVA crew members be able to go off and do these activities now we couldn't name who those EVA crew members were for a number of reasons we didn't know when our hardware was going to exactly be ready when would AMS be ready for us to be able to go to it and do these activities you know lots of different factors all the stuff we've talked about before with space station on how busy station is mm -hmm. when is station going to be able to accommodate these activities so it all came down to this past really it was past january that we identified the specific crew that was going to be on orbit at the time of these activities and that really drove um, who was going to be trained then for this set of stuff so we had a great set of crew members all the way along for the last four years that have really been an integral part of the team because that's probably the only part that we haven't mentioned from a team perspective is that we had lots of different crew members come in and really give us great feedback a lot of them have had on orbit experience others have had a ton of experience in the pool and they help us out and help drive us to a conclusion on some of the items that we had that were out there. Yeah, that's actually a, a big part of this discussion, I think, would be working with astronauts, um, getting getting their feedback. So I, um, you know, we talked about access. We talked about some of the tools. You're defining these requirements. What do you need? What are you going to use to actually get there? Now you got to go and you actually have to test this out. You already talked about development runs. You already talked about you have this idea of how it's going to work. Hey, let's test it out with some, it sounds like astronauts. You were testing That's it right. out with astronauts. So what were some of the things they were giving you right off the bat? Who were you working with? And, and um, what were some of the feedback they were giving you right off the bat? So we worked with, gosh, uh, over the years, we've probably had at least half the astronaut office go wow. through some of our testing and development. Um, we got all kinds of feedback. Um, there, there's the running joke. Sometimes that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, the running joke, ask three astronauts for an opinion, you'll get five answers, right? Yeah. <laughs> Fill in the blank, that's not just astronauts, that's engineers yep, too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it's an iterative process too. So there are some times where we would go in and we'd test a particular tool and we'd decide, hey, we need to go this path, we need to modify it this way, and we'd get back in the next time and we'd say, well, no, actually we had it right before, we need to go back to that. So. Um, it, it's a whole process and it's why we take a lot of time you want to learn those things here on the ground you don't want to learn those in space oh yeah yeah you want to know when you're in space no surprises that's kind of the right. one of the main things I guess with training and defining these requirements is limit the amount of surprises you're gonna get right. do the best that you can yeah. and yeah. there's always gonna be unknowns it, sure it happens every time yeah but you want to be able to react. yeah especially in this scenario where the hardware is not here for us that's to, huge you know connect things up to and make sure it all fits yeah the crew office has done a really great job from our perspective of supplying us with folks with experience chris cassidy jeremy hansen mike hopkins those are some of the main guys that really helped us through this kate rubens and mclean was in there a couple times and we just had a lot of folks with real experience both on the ground and in orbit come in and give us ideas and you know a lot of times we would ask for the is this doable kind of thing? Are we even that far down the path? Does this make it a doable scenario? And sometimes it wasn't. You'd start over and you would keep going. And four years 
sounds like a really long time to develop a project, but boy, it's blown by quickly. And I was thinking Brian and his team was giving a presentation just this past week to some of the program management and hearing all the training that the crew went through doesn't seem like it was that much. (laughs) Not as much as we wanted in the beginning, right? We just didn't have available time with the crew. But oh my word, when we were going through it, it was something that was every day. It was constant, constant, constant for months. And I look back now and I was like, eh, that wasn't so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing it on paper doesn't seem so bad, but over the time period, it was a constant go. Go, go, go. Fitting in schedules, training schedules, all it, that stuff. It sounds like it. And then, you you know, like you said, four years doesn't really sound that surprising when you're talking about so much back and forth. You mm-hmm. have the back and forth with the AMS teams trying to figure out how this is all going to work. Then you have the back and forth with the, with the crew to see, you know, hey, we have this idea of how we think we're going to fix this. And they say, nope, I can't reach it. So right, that's right. huge. That's a huge piece of right. feedback because you need right. that piece of feedback, and it's it's a huge requirement. You know, you, we talked about the crew that's identified on orbit. We knew, I believe it's uh, it's Andrew Morgan and Luca Parmitano. Right. They are they are the people that's going to be doing these spacewalks because they were most importantly going to be in orbit at the time that you wanted to to do this, but also meet all of the requirements that you're talking about. They have the training, um, and they can reach it. Right, that's got to be a big a big part of it is being able to reach it. Otherwise, you can't complete the task. Very true. Yeah. So, tell me about working with them, uh, getting them prepared for because this is this is um, quite a number of EVAs that that they're they have to do all in a row, just the two of them, and they have to do it with this piece of hardware that's not meant to be worked on. So, what was it like working with the two of them? So, um, starting with the past, uh, you know, in shuttle days, crews were assigned. About two years before a flight, and they were EVA specialists. So there were crew members on the flight that their main job on that flight was doing whatever spacewalks for that mission. So they would spend a year to two years training their exact tasks. And, um, you know, talking about Hubble earlier, um, one of the Hubble repairs, they did about 10 runs in the pool for every spacewalk that they did. So, I mean, they pretty much had everything memorized, right? And <laughs> so they I mean, could you think of that. I mean, that's that's like 40 NBL runs they did for one mission. Wow. Now listen to what we did for here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so as Tara said, you know, we knew in January that it was going to be Luca and Drew. And they were leaving the country for launch the end of May, I guess mm-hmm. it was, or early June. So that was our window. We had a four-month window. And by the way, in that four months, they're not here doing AMS training 100% of their time. They still have to go to Cologne and Germany. They still have to go to Japan. They still have to go to Russia to do all their other training. So of that four-ish months, we probably had two, two and a half months when they were actually here. Um, So we crammed as much as we could into their schedule. We did, uh, like we talked about, we did MBL runs. We did Argos runs. We have uh, glove boxes over in one of the buildings here where um, it's a a tabletop-sized container, and you can put uh, EMU spacesuit gloves in there. You suck all the air out of the container, and now you've got essentially pressurized gloves. So we could put small pieces, and they could use that to kind of do part-task training is what we call it. So Hmm. driving a wrench on this little gizmo. Um, I mean, we, we pulled out everything we could think of uh, to get these guys up to speed. So I said 10 to 1 for Hubble. So for AMS, we're looking at four EVAs in space. Luca and Drew had seven NBL runs total. Wow. So that's not even a 2 to 1 ratio. Yeah, but that was what you had to, like you said, that's what you had so to work had. with. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you ask about working with them. I mean, Luca and Drew are great. Um, so this is Drew's first space flight. He is uh, up there right now, just knocking it, knocking out, of the it park. out of the park. He is Absolutely. doing amazing. Yeah, he is. He really is. Even to, through these um, battery spacewalks, getting a lot of spacewalk. He's he's getting through those skills, so that's valuable experience right there. Plus, you did mention. I mean, that's you're just talking about working with these specific crew members. You've been working with crew members for a while now to hone these skills, just the general basis of the skills and designing the procedures. Sure. Which is uh, which is big. Um, Let's talk about the training. Let's talk about what we actually actually did. Uh, you talked. We we've been saying neutral buoyancy laboratory quite a bit, and uh, just for folks who may not know what that is, what is the neutral buoyancy laboratory, and what were the AMS spacewalks like inside of it? Sure, it's a giant swimming pool. Uh, it's a little over six million gallons, and we have uh, a mock-up of the space station. It's a hundred feet by two hundred feet across and forty feet deep. So a lot of water. Um, <laughs> even with that size, though, we can't fit the whole space station in there. So we've got kind of the main central part of the space station and then uh, kind of spread out across the sides of the pool, we've got um, some of the outer areas. So AMS is part of the, um, it's sitting on top of the main truss section, the backbone of space station. In the pool, it's kind of set in a corner, not because it's in trouble, <laughs> <laughs> but because, you know, that's where it fit in the pool. Sure. Um, so, you know, we use that for all our spacewalk training from the very beginning, the first time somebody gets in the suit, all the way through the specialized training that we're talking about, um, which is a whole nother level we haven't even touched on. We have to, you know, when this started, we had to figure out how to build a mock-up for the MBL, right? A lot of what we do in spacewalks, as we've already talked about, is uh, generic. It's large. You know, we're looking at just big things on the outside of space station. For this, we're talking very tiny things inside of a mock-up. So it was very new territory for folks at the MBL too, where um, there's concerns for what kind of materials you can use in the water because metals get eaten. It's a corrosive environment. So, um, you know, we some of that was trial and error too, where, uh, you know, the first couple of runs, we had some brackets and some fasteners that completely rusted out. Oh, so, so it's uh, not even with the techniques or the procedures. It's just mm, with the manufacturing of the, the environment. Wow. Yep. So, through all those. And we talked about accessing AMS in space. Access in the pool is a big deal too, right? You, you've got crew members in there for six hours at a time. You don't want to hang them upside down all day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we had to think about how the mock-up was oriented in the pool, which way it was up. So we ended up putting it on its side. And uh, that's one thing we talk about in, uh, in my group a lot, the mental gymnastics, right? So we had a mock-up over at Argos that when we were doing engineering evaluations, it's standing, you know, it's sitting there on the ground. When we were using Argos, we would lay it down on its back. When we're in the pool, AMS was in a different orientation. So every time somebody came to it, you know, it's like, okay, wait, wait, which, which part am I looking at here? Which way's up? <laughs> <laughs> but you have to orient it based on what's the most valuable for that particular training. So you angled the, the uh, you angled the AMS in the pool because in the pool they would, I mean, you're floating around in the pool, but you still have gravity af affecting you. So you have to, right. you know, that, that would stink to be upside down for that whole time. You keep mentioning Argos. Uh, what's Argos and what, what were some of the runs done there? So Argos is the active response gravity offload system. And uh, it's a really neat tool over uh, on the engineering side of the house where um, you're able to suspend somebody in a hang gliding harness and uh, it's a basically a giant robot 
and it mimics microgravity. They can do planetary gravity too. Um, spacewalking, we're interested in microgravity. Uh, they can also hang a spacesuit from it. So early on, we did the um, shirt sleeve is what we would call it. So somebody just in the hang gliding harness, mm. and they could climb around on the on the AMS mock-up, try some of the tools. Once we had an idea of what we thought was going to work, we brought in the spacesuit and put somebody in that, and uh, and then figured out if that would work. So, you know, the early side, the shirt sleeve environment, it's a quick turnaround. You can hop in, hop out, you know, try something, go tweak something, come back. Uh, putting the spacesuit in there, there's more overhead, right? You've got a person in a suit, so it's a pressurized environment. You've got to have oxygen. You've got to have a lot of uh, a lot of other ancillary things to make that happen. So. So what was the value of uh, doing some stuff in the pool and some stuff on the Argos? And then you also mentioned some tabletop stuff, too. Yeah, so uh, at Argos, uh, we've got a very high-fidelity mock-up. So we're not concerned about the corrosive pool environment, right? So we could could build it. And it's also people are just... Um, working on it shirtsleeve, right? So they can build anything they need to. The uh, the MBL mock-up, uh, they did all the initial construction out of the water, but then once it goes in the water, it's a pretty big deal to take it in and out of the water. They got to get a crane and a, and a whole team to do that. So once it's in there, it pretty much stays in there and only comes out maybe once or twice a year. Hmm. Um, so again, at Argos, we, we did more high fidelity training where the mock-up was a lot more flight-like is what we like to say. Um, whereas the neutral buoyancy lab was, um, you know, it didn't have all the detail in the mock-up. It had the detail where we were actually working, but some of the surrounding structure maybe wasn't even there. Hmm. So it's yeah, a little I, bit. Of I would say that Argos was invaluable during our, the development phase of the project. Very early yeah. on, it allowed us, from a quick turnaround perspective, we could go over there and only spend a few hours with a very small team of people and allowed the engineers to get in the sling, the harness, you know, the hang gliding harness, to allow them to be over the mock-up and really work in the work site. It helped them, I think, in visual, you know, visualize how their tools were going to work or what they needed to alter in their tools to make them work. Hmm. It was a just a great process for us, it, you know, to be able to iterate those different changes and work quick, quick things, which was great. NBL is fantastic for training and more of a real environment, but that Argos was just invaluable to us in being able to process through everything in the amount of time that we did. Yeah, just that yeah, you're kind of, um, you, you make the design, you have an original, I guess, high fidelity mock-up. This is kind of what we're gonna be working with, but you know, f- refining those things, that's invaluable. Mm-hmm. And plus being an engineer where you have to say, hey, I gotta strap myself into that harness, guys. Sorry, it's for it science. It's pretty rough for yeah. Yeah. Take one yeah. for the yeah. team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, let's walk through some of the spacewalks that you have. Uh, Brian, you mentioned four. We're, we're actually, that's a new number to me because I think originally we were looking at a little bit more. Yeah, so early on, um, you know, we when this first started we really had no idea right and then you kind of you kind of estimate by um what you think it's going to be so early on we were saying between three and five evas was kind of the rough guess um after luca and drew went through all their mbl runs one of the things we do we keep um time tracking for all the tasks so i'm sitting there with the pen and paper uh, everything they're doing i'm recording how long it takes them um, it gives us an idea of how long it's going to take in space, right? So the pool isn't exact, um, the hardware isn't exact, the, the procedures aren't exact, but it gives us a good gauge. So once they went through those seven MBL runs, I was able to sit down and compile all that data and uh, do the math 
and uh, and put things together. Um, there's a lot, a lot, that goes into um, packaging all the different tasks into EVAs. So generally, we try and uh, we keep it to six and a half hours. Yeah. A whole another podcast to talk about why. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, there's efficiencies too, right? Because you've got to set up the worksite, you got to bring all the tools out, you got to open up the bags. So you try and group things a certain way so it fits in that, right? Um, but basically you take the times from the pool and again, going back to the generic spacewalks, we don't always have that information, right? Because people might be on orbit before we even know we're doing that spacewalk. But we have the luxury in this case of knowing Luca and Drew's times we're able to extrapolate that to what we think it'll be on orbit. So uh, we're able to package everything. Um, we are stretching that six and a half hours a little bit on uh, the middle two EVAs. We think those are gonna go a little bit longer, um, but it, it, it's what allows us to get to four EVAs instead of five. Which is, I guess, ultimately, yeah, it's a little bit longer in the middle, but for the crew, taking away another day of spacewalking, uh, Tara, I think we went over this a little bit when we talked about how to plan a spacewalk. I mean, a lot of it just has to do, if I had to shorten it, with just how much time before and after the spacewalk. It's very taxing for the crew. Um, so it's just a long day. Any, anything you can do to help them with another long day, I think, would be much appreciated. Plus, as we've mentioned before, there's a lot of other things going on in the space station. Absolutely. So let's walk through the spacewalks. What, if we had to do a summary of each of the four, what are the, what are the main tasks that we're looking at for each of them? So the first one is uh, basically just getting access to everything. Mm -hmm. it's, it's opening up the worksite, taking off a couple of different shields, covers, um, and that's pretty much it for the first one, which might not sound like much, but again, we're talking all those non-captive fasteners. It's very time consuming. Mm -hmm. uh, the second EVA is when we get into um, kind of getting ready to bring the new pump system out. So we access the power cable, the data. Uh, we actually cut tubes on that one. So that's when we um, put AMS on life support or however you want to say that. <laughs> yeah. But at, at that point, uh, their cooling system is no longer working. We, we cut into it and uh, it's on life support. <laughs> so, um, and that's that's pretty much the content of that at a high level. The third EVA is when we bring out the new pump system, we install that, and then we've got, uh, I think Tara said it earlier, we've got eight tubes that we're connecting. So the box has all this plumbing on it outside and uh, stainless steel tubing, it's about the width of a pencil. Um, and it's uh, it's a piece of art. It's really amazing how uh, and for everybody listening, you should go out and find pictures of this box because the way that the engineers figured out how to coil these tubes on the box, um, it's two things, right? You don't want this big spider coming out of the airlock. It would never make it out. So you want to keep things contained. Uh, but we need the length on these tubes to really route it inside AMS and connect to the lines that, that we're connecting to. So it's, it's really a piece of art. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we make all those connections, those eight connections. There's six in one location and then two more on the, on the nadir side or the bottom side of AMS. And uh, that's the bulk of the third EVA is making all those connections. The fourth EVA is really coming out. And um, so the fittings that we're using have a built-in leak check mechanism. Uh, if it's leaking, it has a visual indicator that will show that. So we come out and we look at those leak indicators. Um, if if there is a leak, then uh, we take action. Hopefully that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's why it's there. 
and uh, and then we close everything out on that EVA. So we took off those shields, those covers, a lot of MLI or multi-layer insulation. Um, all of that needs to be covered back up for, for thermal reasons. So we've got uh, several new blankets that we're installing on AMS. Okay. There it is. That's the that's the task. It, it makes logical sense. It's easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really sounds easy when you talk about it, Brian. Piece of cake. Four years of work? Yeah, mm-hmm. not a problem. Um, so, Brian, tell me what you're going to be doing as the uh, – or helping out in Mission Control real time. Sure. So I'll be in the, uh, the back room, and um, we've got a lot of folks. So um, during any spacewalks, we've got – Gosh, I can't even do the math in public on how many people are involved. There's a lot of people. So we've got the main mission control center that you see on TV. Uh, We've got the MER, which is a team of engineers in um, basically another mission control room. Mission evaluation room, I think. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, every, so pretty much every person you see sitting in the mission control center, there's at least one, in some cases, four or five people in a back room that are supporting um, that person as well. So everybody's talking on the communication loops, we're all on headsets. Um, My role is kind of that intermediary where I'll be talking directly to the engineers, the the AMS folks, the tool folks, um, and anybody else that I need to. (laughs) Sometimes there's other people you need to talk to and then communicating information back and forth. So um, I'm the one that's written the procedures. So I'm also uh, following along to what the crew is doing, making sure that uh, they're getting through things that they need to get to. If there's any trouble, we have what we call a crib sheet, um, which Tara, how many hours do you think oh we spend goodness. developing many, one of those? Many, 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 <laughs> yeah. many. We spend a lot. Of, so we spend a, a lot of time developing the nominal procedures, or the you know the regular procedures, and then we take those procedures and every step in that procedure, we say, well, what if that doesn't work? What if that doesn't work? Oh, what if man. this breaks? What if that? So it's a lot of what if. Uh, but again, it's, it's spacewalking time is so valuable. You don't have the luxury of saying, okay, guys, just uh, hang out for the next three hours while we talk about this, right? You need to have a plan going in. So, um, you know, I'm following along, and if if we do need to go to that crib sheet, um, you know, I'll be the one saying, hey, we're on crib sheet page 47 or whatever it is. Yeah. And he talks about that crib sheet, and going back to the normal EVAs and things that we do, we have a toolbox on orbit. We have other tools that can help us through some of these crib sheet items that occur. Hmm. Sometimes we have to go create things from new, uh, e- either from internal tooling that we have there, or sometimes you may have to launch something new. Well, from the AMS perspective, this whole worksite is so unique, we don't have a toolbox up there. So we really had to th- step through and think about things. What can we protect for? got limited time, limited budget, you know, what are what are the events that we think is most likely to occur and how would we recover from those incidents? So just recently, in the past week actually, they determined there was one other thing that we really needed to go protect for in that crib sheet or that failure scenario. So we just created a couple new tools that we're going to launch on the vehicle here in the coming weeks. So it's a very quick turnaround, very quick way of thinking about the tool itself and this is just kind of that throwing the kitchen sink at every you know at the failure if this occurs we're we're going to be stopped so let's come up with a solution before it occurs and be able to fix it real time so that's our goal with that i think a lot of people can relate to that just uh you work so hard on something and it's getting up to like when it's actually going to start kicking off and you just you want to you know make sure everything is right in place and tweak this and just double check that triple check that you sounds like you're even making some some 
some changes even now. How how are you feeling coming up to it? Is is are we? Do you feel good that it's coming up so soon and uh, we're gonna actually kick this off and all that four years, probably more of hard work uh, going into it are gonna start paying off soon? Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm very excited about it. We joked for a long time that we could, you know, see the tunnel and the light at the end of the tunnel. We didn't know if it was the train or if it was actually the end of the tunnel. And I really feel like it's no longer a train. It is the end of the tunnel. And we're really, we're going to go off and do this. And we're going to be successful. And it's going to be a great ride for everyone that's involved in it. And just really looking forward to the success that we're going to have in the next few months. That's awesome. Brian, you feeling good? I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So one of the great things, um, you know, crew members love going outside. Uh, outside the space station they talk about the views and, and all that they get really excited about doing spacewalks so <laughs> um, this is kind of the epitome of what we do here right where we've developed a lot of new things a lot of um, a lot of off the wall thinking too mm -hmm. so looking forward to seeing it well it's neat to see from this project we don't always get this perspective anymore because we already have that toolbox on board hmm. and all those things have been developed this you know is a is a new creation so to speak and we watched it grow from the infancy all the way up here now and now we're going to see it out in space being used and it's just awesome to be able to see that entire process what a great team that has been involved with this all the way along uh, just going to be super to see it all come together I'm so excited for you both. Tara and Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And really, best of luck to you. Best of luck to the teams. Best of luck to the astronauts. Really looking forward to kicking this off. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks for sticking around. We had a fascinating discussion with Terry Yoakum and Brian Mader about the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer's spacewalks today. Very exciting time. I really hope you tune in to watch them. You can go to nasa.gov ntv to look at the schedule for when you are going to be actually conducting these spacewalks. And you'll find some more information about the spacewalks at nasa.gov. If you want to know more about the space station, nasa.gov iss. And if you really love NASA podcasts, we got a lot of them at nasa.gov podcasts. I would highly recommend that you go and watch the NASA documentary called AMS The Fight for Flight to learn more about the history and struggle of getting the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer on the space station. It's available through a link on the episode webpage. Otherwise, you can follow us at uh, the NASA pages or the International Space Station pages or where we are at the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show and make sure to mention it's for Houston we have a podcast. This episode was recorded on October 9th, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Nora Moran, Belinda Polito, Rachel Berry, and the International Space Station Program Science Office team. Thanks again to Terry Oakham and Brian Mader for taking the time to come on the show. We'll be back next week with the last episode on this series of the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer.